Hello and welcome to the Open Lives, sorry, Outdoor Lives. We've changed the name to better reflect the wide variety of people talking to the Outdoor Lives podcast. My name is Mike Rain. I'm the author of Nature Snowdonia and the forthcoming The Mountain Leader. This podcast is free to air, ad free and music free. You can find out more about me and my workshops and uh, e-learning modules and things like that on my website at www.mikerain.co.uk. However, you're not here to listen to me today. You're here to meet my guest, and my guest is Tomo Thompson. Tomo is the CEO of Friends of the Peak District. Uh, he's also CEO of the CPRE Council for Preservation of Rural England for the Peak District in South Yorkshire. He's a former army officer turned environmental campaigner. I should ask, is a, a relatively new volunteer with the Edale Mountain Rescue Team as well. So. There's always just a chance it's a Friday afternoon and it is half term, just a chance you might get called away from us. So uh, let, let's hope that doesn't happen. Tomo, how are you today? Hi, Mike. I'm, uh, I'm busy, but very well. Thanks, Rich. That's excellent. Good to hear. So what are you busy doing is the obvious question. What is it you do and how do you come to be doing it? I left the... Uh, army in I left it properly in 2018 and started um, guiding some kind of holiday walks and things around I'd moved to Sheffield by then but I was kind of guiding some walks and things various parts of the world and I was I think from memory I was in the Trudos mountains and my um, my phone pinged with and, and five of my mates had all seen the same um, job advert and had all jumped to the conclusion that without speaking to each other, that I might be a good fill for that job. And the job was, as you said in the intro, um, running um, Friends of the Peak District and CPRE Peak District in South Yorkshire, which are kind of the same thing, but they have a, a slight overlap in remit. Um, and yeah, having kind of left the army with, having done quite a few things that were um, probably not of normal run of the day use in the, in the, um, in the civilian world, yeah, I came back to Sheffield and went for a job interview, and here I am, four four and a half years later or something. Um, what what do we do? Um, CPRE Peterson South Yorkshire is a is the local branch of a charity called um, CPRE, and in overarching terms, we work to um, protect the countryside and green spaces of the Peak District and South Yorkshire. And I emphasise the and because. There's an awful lot of green space in um, South Yorkshire. It needs protecting, but in slightly different ways to that in which a national park needs protecting. And with the Friends of the Peak District hat on, and, and you and I met recently, Mike, at um, the Snowdonia Society uh, conference up in, uh, in Snowdonia at Plassey Brennan, um, each of the national parks in England and Wales has a kind of, um, has a society that sits parallel to it and comes under an umbrella organisation called the Campaign for National Parks. And, and what we do is we have a very, very good working relationship with the Peak District National Park Authority uh, and oftentimes work with them in support of, um, you know, common purposes, common aims. And if we or our membership or the communities think that the National Park Authority are doing or intend to do something that doesn't necessarily comply or chime with their um, reasons for existing then we will use the planning process or some other process or some legal process to you know to challenge that and hold them to account so 
Um, but in and around that piece as well, there's access, there's connecting people to countryside. There is, um, you know, look, looking after rural economy, uh, sorry, rural communities. There's looking after um, quite quite um, niche to to the Petersham National Park is is the proximity of one of the largest cities in England. You know, a third of the city of Sheffield is inside the Peak District, so that in itself creates um, opportunities, creates tensions. Um, you know, and creates kind of work that needs doing. Um, and the charity, you know, the reason I do this actually harks back to the reasons the charity was founded. And if I may, just for a couple of minutes, um, there was a, a, a lady called Ethel Hayfontwaite who, in 1917, she was, um, it'd be fair to say, she was um, uh, born into a, a, a life of privilege, lived in a large house on the west side of Sheffield and married an army officer in 1917, a chap called Henry Gallimore. Um, and seven months after they married, um, he was killed in action in France. And um, her family, the phrase we kind of use telling the story is her family um, urged her to go out for what they called restorative walks in the countryside. And over the next five, six years of, of getting out and, and and, and being in the, I guess, the moorland that we now kind of appreciate as Burbage, Stanage, Bamford, um, the Derwent edges up onto kind of Kinder and Bleaklow, albeit just kind of drop in there that she probably went to them in a Rolls Royce chauffeured by the family <laughs> butler. Um, but she absolutely realised two things happening. One is an improvement in her physical and mental well-being following the grief and secondly, was a was a change of what was going on in the countryside to the sides of Sheffield. The introduction of vehicles, the introduction of advertising hoardings, the introduction of um, buildings at will, if you will, um, and litter um, and, a, and a variety of other things. And yeah, 7th of May 1924 in her mother's um, very large sitting room, she brought I use the phrase the great and the good. Some of them were great and some of them were good. And there, you know, there were other people that weren't there. But she brought a cross section of doers, makers, believers into that room and they founded a charity. And the reason they founded the charity fundamentally was to look after the countryside um, for the for the good and benefit of, you know, um, the people that were looking to access it for their own physical and mental um benefits and, and and the reason I say that is you know that was 1924 the charity is 100 years old in um under two years time and, and day in day out now and, and my own and we can come on to this later but my own kind of um growing up and certain points in my life I've gone to the outdoors and the hills for literally for physical and mental well-being um and, and you know I I see it I read it you see it on the internet and everything else of of, of the vital importance of the countryside to you know it, it it calls to us it heals us it looks after us and it's a space that you know I'm I'm, I'm privileged um you know to live where I live and to have the job that I do but I, I you know I see it as fundamentally important to um to protect and to look after those spaces. Ethel Haythorthwaite sounds like a very important person are you saying she set up the Friends of the Peak District before the Peak District National Park was established? No, she set up, um, it's quite funny actually, at the beginning she wanted it to be called um, something like the Sheffield Group for 
demonstrating against damaging the countryside or something like oh, that. Wow. And, um, <laughs> it was all quite, um, it was all quite, um, you know, she, she was, she was properly fired up and, um, you know, the, the cause literally sang to her. Um, so she, um, two years after the charity was founded, it became a branch of CPRE. Um, and actually the Friends of the Peak District thing was, uh, didn't occur until actually about, about 20 years ago, from 20 years from now, um, when when that kind of National Park Society, for us anyway, um, became became a thing. But one of the, some of the early stuff that, that the charity did, and there's a very kind of um, philanthropic um, thread running through the early years of the charity, uh, which we don't really see very much these days, is, is when there was a threat to the countryside that um, the, the, the charity and the membership and the community thought needed action taken against it. Generally, back in the first 30 years, 40 years of charity, the, the problem was just bought out. And you know, as, I, as I'm increasingly diving into the history of the charity, and we've just had a brilliant project with the Heritage Lottery Fund to professionally archive our history, but we see time and time again, um, you know, threats to the countryside coming up, being discussed in the minutes of a meeting, uh, and somebody around that table literally would the next day would just buy the problem out. Multiple farms in the in Edale that were being bought for or proposed to be bought for purposes other than other than farming. Um, somebody would just buy the farm and gift it to the National Trust. Um, many listeners, particularly in and around the Peak District, will know of the Longshore Estate on the edge of um, on the edge of Peak District, the edge, edge of Sheffield. Um, that was that moorland, beautiful, beautiful moorland that kind of comes out to the west and southwest of the city. Um, was going to be a, essentially a housing estate extension to the um, to the city, and not on Ethel's watch, it wasn't. So she very quickly did what we'd now know as a kind of Kickstarter crowdfunder, and uh, and bought it um, at, at no um, <laughs> no small expense, and within about a year, gifted it to the National Trust for them to you know now look after and as uh, as people do. Um, coming coming on to. You know, two very tangible things. Um, one within the within and without the city is um, is the green belt, that kind of arc of greenery, um, predominantly to the south and west of the city, but there are aspects of it further around as well. Um, it was the charity, it was Ethel working very closely with the city council in the mid thirties that that established that um, and you know brought in significant planning restrictions which have helped stop the spread of the city into the into the lungs of the city if you will into its breathing space and then um and this is a, a, a you know an amazing story in itself and we've actually just commissioned the author authoress um helen mort to write the biography of ethel and within it the history of the charity but from about the 1930s mid 1930s ethel realized it, it wasn't just her and it wasn't just the city of Sheffield that was benefiting from all of this countryside on its edge. You know, the, as we sit here now, the Peak District has about 19 million people that live within an hour of it. Uh, it's an awful lot of people that that go there for the for the space and the exercise and everything else. Uh, and so she, uh, and with her, latterly with her, uh, her second husband Gerald Hayfonquait, um began to literally draw a line on a map. And we've got the map and it's got the line on it of kind of where we, we would 
hem in, if you could, this kind of um, these landscapes, these moorlands, with the view to giving it greater protection as a result of its importance to the communities that live around it. And as we all know, in April 1951, that became the first national park uh, in the country, which is the Peter Street National Park. So, uh, and her her role in that, her role in the political process, the bureaucratic process, repeated trips down to London, repeated hostings of the Hobhouse Committee and everybody else up here. Um, yeah, bore fruit, um, bore fruit in 1951 with the yeah, the establishment of, that, of, of the National Park, which, as I said a while ago, you know, it's, it, a third of this city is inside the National Park. We're kind of very, she very... Sounds, she sounds like a very important and impressive lady. She's remembered, isn't she, in the... Is it the Ethels, the tops in the Peak District? Uh, somebody's listed them as the Ethels now. Do you know that? I, I do know that because in... Um, about two years ago, my phone, it was my phone, my email, one of them went, my phone went. And the voice on the other end said, I oh, it's Doug, Doug Colton. I don't think we've met, but I've got a bit of an idea. <laughs> and Doug was, um, again, here we go, passion, passionate about the countryside, passionate about getting outdoors and everything else. But also one of those people that could um, write apps, write telephone apps, um, yeah. practically in his sleep. And he had, yeah, he came up with the idea um that you know that the lake district had the wainwrights and scotland had the monroes and um this that and the other and he wanted um he wanted there to be a a kind of a, a list of hills in the peak district so that people could um a you know come and visit them and, and tick them off and also but also to so use it for visitation purposes but also um the 95 hills above 400 meters most of which are inside the national park uh, he wanted to try and persuade some people to go away from the honey pots away from the kind of mantors kinders bleak clothes of this world um so he yeah he he created that app he came to us um we're very great i think we we pay a very small hosting cost every year for the app but um it last time i spoke to doug which wasn't too long ago we were into the kind of um you know, 25,000 people that have downloaded the app and are off off ticking it. As you would expect in a living, working landscape like the Peak Street, there are a couple of issues around um, public access to some of the hills, um, which in itself is a, you know, it, it, it is a narrative. But working with him, working with the National Park, where we're able to kind of put messaging onto the app and that kind of thing and try and encourage people to, um, you know, to find ways to get to certain ethels a bit more responsibly but we've had crikey we, you know there's we've had people running them we've had um you know as you kind of get you know with the wainwrights and the monroes people who have kind of almost life-changing experiences by get getting into hill walking by doing their first ethel you know and they get hooked and then they're um and they're off doing that and the other the other kind of um walking kind of event thing that we have within the charity is um to mark our 75th birthday we joined up all of the public rights of way closest to the boundary of the national park and created the peter street boundary walk which is 190 miles long and again there's this you know you'll know this very much from your part your part of the world um having set it up you know expecting people to take 
several weeks walking it on day walks and that kind of thing. We've now got, I think there's somebody that's run it, do they run it back to back? You know, there's, there's people ticking it off and sprinting around it and um, all sorts of all sorts of stuff there, which is all, um, it, it, it's another opportunity for people to come to the, mm-hmm. come is, to the it, park. is that a Waymarked trail now, Tom? It is Waymarked by us, by the Friends of the Peak District. Um, there's a book which um, Vertebrate Publishing sell. Um, I think one of the, um, I, I don't know which one, but one of the, um, when I say guided walking companies, I mean the companies that carry your bags for you. Mm, yeah. I think one of them offer it so you can, um, you know, with a bit of navigation, you can do it pub to pub and your, um, you know, your bags will turn up and that kind of thing. But there's an yeah, increasing number of people that are um, getting involved in that, which is um, which is a lovely thing as well. Sounds like a good a good walk. You do. Um, it just makes me think how varied the Peak District is. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Peak District myself. Not so much now. I live in Snowdonia, but uh, certainly as a youth, we'd be uh, walking there, climbing there, and driving quite quickly between those places as well. I was in the Peak District earlier this year to do some work, and uh, I was gobsmacked how busy it was. Absolutely gobsmacked. I was near Castleton up onto Loose Hill and Mam Tor. And I knew it'd be busy, Tomo, but it was busy beyond my, it was like Snowden busy. It was unbelievable. Is that the general pattern or is it people sticking on those honey pots? And what issues is that causing? The, I mean, I don't, I can't quote this over kind of 30, 40 years, but certainly the, the decade or so I've been coming here very regularly or living here, um, the visitation rates, you know, you you go out one kind of May, June and think we thought last May, June was busy and this May, June is just crikey busy. Um, it is. Yeah, it's tremendously busy, tremendously busy. I said a moment ago, um, 19 million people living within an hour. Um, I think. There is something I, I need to just refine the figures, but I think it's something like. 50% of the population live within a four hour drive and most people would happily make a four hour drive for, you know, the weekend. Um, it is it is phenomenally busy. And, you know, there's a couple of things um, you, you probably know of or have read that the the reservoirs in the Derwent Valley are very low at the moment. And, you know, touching on one of those things that kind of come, a, come about and, and massively increase the visitation is... Um, YouTube influencers say the the village the village of Derwent that was flooded along with the village of Oldport to um to create the reservoirs in that valley because the water levels are so low it's you know it's visible now it's been visible last time I think 2018 2018 the water level was really quite low and it was visited and there were a lot of people there the numbers are just absolutely unreal at the moment and and we you know both personally as a person who uses and enjoys the hills also with my mountain rescue head on and also with my kind of charity head on, you kind of trying to think why. And then I was chatting to somebody the other day who sent me a yeah, you, YouTube influencer link that's been hit millions of times, millions of times. And this like, uh, and there's a, there's a, you know, another example of that in, um, and I believe the chap is a, a pop star in a South Korean pop star. <laughs> and, and three or four, three years ago, he did a, um, one of those kind of whistle stop tours of Britain. And my understanding is that he did a, like a, a dance routine on TikTok, mm-hmm. stood on the top of Bamford Edge. And now 
like nationally, Bamford Edge is a hotspot for South Korean visitors. Uh, and if you, um, it's kind of half term at the moment, but certainly on a, you know, on a Saturday morning, if you ride, walk or drive under Bamford Edge, you'll see like a long line of South Korean tourists coming up and, you know, recreating that little dance routine. So there are, you know, there are reasons around physical and mental well-being while the outdoor visitation numbers are increasing. There's, you know, at the moment it's literally half term. So there's kind of diary reasons. And then there's all these kind of anomaly reasons where something becomes, you know, somebody, a YouTube influence or something particular happens and and pops it up. But been in, um, yeah, the Upper Valley a couple of times this week on mountain rescue jobs uh, and the numbers are just, number of people are just, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I, I think, um, I, I don't have any quick answers to how you kind of spread the jam, how you move. It's a, it's a 555 square um, mile park. I don't know how you, it, I mean, you and I would both know the quiet areas of the peak or the quiet areas of Snowdonia two, three, four years ago. I don't think any of those quiet areas exist anymore because well, every, everybody's kind of finding them out. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, um, all, all we can do in that circumstance is, is work harder on the the education, you know, the behavioural side of trying to advise people. Um, but hey, yeah, as I say, somebody, what one person with a several million followers on YouTube does something, and then that just creates uh, an amazing kind of spike in visitation. Yeah, we see that. Um, certainly, see that in Snowdonia quite a, a lot as well. It's. Um, it's a difficult thing for us to to um, predict and to engage in, isn't it? And I'm always slightly torn between the honeypot and the spreading principle. In many ways, it's good to keep people in honeypots, but that only works if we can cater, if we can have enough space there, enough provision there. Um, and sometimes you don't particularly want to spread visitors. Is that something that's a dilemma in the peak district or is it just so busy you just need to spread the visitors but there must be people saying no i, I don't want the visitors um, keep them in the honeypots uh there are yeah um and there's you know the, the national parks are, are you know determined space isn't it there's uh, so you've got you know the national parks are established size and you've got i don't know what the percentage growth every year in 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 visitation is i, I know um, for, you know, as we do on a very on a daily, weekly basis, speaking to residents in the national park, they would desperately like somehow for the for the you know the jam to be spread. But for that to happen, um, there needs to be, uh, and again, it, it's not just driven by the national park and, and the national park stake, stakeholders, but it's principally driven by the, the visitors. There needs to be a willingness to um, and the provision of a, a public transport system that gets gets people away from where everybody else is going. But there, there is a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a herd mentality, but, you know, we, we started the conversation around the physical and mental well-being benefits, but there are people who are, um, their skill set, they're, they're not kind of, um, they're not at one in, in the outdoor environment and therefore it's easier for them, you know, you mentioned Castleton, it's easier for them to pull up in Castleton you know, it's only over the hill from kind of Manchester, Stockport and Sheffield, um, you know, with their trail magazine route or their whatever, you know, walking app they've they followed and and, and go and do that bit. Um, 
I, what I am seeing is is a the, the the jam not being spread. I mean, there's the dark peak and the white peak within the Peak District, and you can, you know, if you if you're in the Hope Valley, you know, if you turn around and drive south or walk south or ride south for, I mean, almost literally the the south side of the Hope Valley, you will see. Um, thousands and thousands less people than if you're on the other side of the valley, which is the kind of famous side. Um, you know, if you go to Emoor and then into, you know, anywhere into the White Peak, again, apart from the honey spots, um, honey pot bits, it's, you know, it, 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 it's markedly quieter. A lot of this, you know, it, a lot of this comes down to behaviours, doesn't it? And it comes down to influence and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, on, on, a, on a personal level, I'm super pleased that people are getting outside and doing something. You know, I'd, I'd rather, yes, there are issues around parking, access, litter and everything else. Um, but if 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 most all of that is done responsibly, you know, if there are 600 people stood on top of Mamtor, well, you know, fair play to them. They've all they've all done the walk up and they've managed to get to the top of it. If um, if there are so many people visiting, does that mean you have a lot of members? A lot of people appreciate the Peak District and joining the Friends of the Peak District and, and you know, bumping up your coffers, as it were. And also for the Peak National Park, if you're a school, you get um, you get your, your money from the government, depending on how many children you've got in the school. Does the Peak District National Park get its money depending on how many visitors it's got? So sitting over here in Wales, where it's all pretty quiet and we've got a very small country with a small population, You've got 40 odd million people in England there, a lot of money, a lot of wealth. Presumably, you're a pretty rich charity and your national park is raking it in from the government. He said, uh, no, what, we, what you can't see, <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, what you can't see is the, the wry smile on Mike's <laughs> face and the, um, and the smile on my face. Um, the membership of, of the charity is relatively small it could be significantly bigger um likewise um the the income that the national park receives from government in in real terms has been on the um, decrease for quite some time now um the the, the kind of nub of the situation is because there are so many people living around the outside of this national park that they can you know, wake up in the morning. I think you posted something yesterday or the other day on kind of where you get your pack lunch from and that kind of thing. But they can wake up, they can get their pack lunch out the cupboard at home. They can get in there. It's predominantly they get in their vehicle. You know, we've, we're absolutely blessed. One of one of the best. When I say best, I mean the fact that there is a train service through it. I accept the fact that the the regularity frequency of the trains could be better, but there is. We just mentioned the Hope Valley. There's a train line straight to the middle of it, but people would still rather um, drive and either pay to park or park somewhere they don't have to pay. Um, but yeah, they get out of their beds. You know, mum, dad, and the kids. They get a pack lunch out the cupboard. They drive here. They either pay to park or don't. They go for their walk or their, you know, climb or their whatever it is they do. They get back in their car and they go home. And they've. You know, there's an eternal argument here about it's it's called a national park and I pay my taxes. Um, it is a national park, but the contribution given from the 
you know, the, the um, given from GDP into the national parks is in real terms is decreasing, but the use of it by the population is massively, massively increasing. And there is therefore a, a massive problem in, um, and the only realistic way that the national park can create touch points to those millions and millions of visitors is through car park charging and we've just seen uh, another consultation go out this week that um there's a the, i think uh, same as Snowdonia, there's a mesh of land ownership in the peak district and the peak district national park owns 45 car parks um some of which it doesn't charge for um but it's having to increase both the per hour and per day cost of parking in a car park so it, it, it's got to raise income so it's got to charge for parking it's got to charge you know the ice cream van to park there it's got to um create alongside its you know its access facilities toilets and that kind of thing it's got to create things to try and leverage money out of people's pockets but the vast majority of people can come and use the national park um without contributing without kind of knowing or expecting or anticipating that there will be a requirement upon them to to financially contribute um and that is you know it's essentially the 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 hub of the problem and you know we can look at national parks in other parts of the world and see how how that has gone we you know there are continual narratives around um creating paid access on the kind of arterial routes into the national park and that kind of thing but um i i struggle to think of another another example in british life where something has become so so more dramatically popular but is is unable to uh, i don't really like the phrase monetize it but hopefully you understand where i'm coming from it costs a phenomenal amount of money to look after the national park and to look after the, you know the access to it for Derbyshire County Council and Sheffield County Council, uh, Sorry, County Council, Sheffield County Council, and others. And yet, um, there are tens of millions of people every year that come and enjoy it. And again, I'm just going to caveat when I say for free. Yes, I accept that they, you know, majority of them are taxpayers. Um, but will I? I I'm constantly in conversations, you know, both with local groups and with the National Park and various other people around ways that you sort that out. Um, but actually, we, you know, we used the analogy a moment ago of shifting the jam and actually what what do we think is going to happen when you increase the cost of the car parks? And I was, you know, discussing with people yesterday, if you, if you don't make it, um, if you don't place small p or make it difficult to um, park on verges or you know down farm lanes on that kind of thing and you increase the cost of parking then all you're doing is shifting that particular kind of jam and within all of this you know the we kind of it's fine for me i can buy i think they're putting it up to 66 quid for an annual car parking pass for their 45 car parks you know I, I personally can afford that or the it's about five it's going to be about five pounds to park for the day but there is again the demographic in British society that is probably most in need of 
the physical and mental well-being benefits of being outdoors that hasn't got might have a car that family might have a car but they haven't got the you know that that five quid's food for the day they haven't got the food they haven't got the five quid to go and park so how do you you know how do you level that off how do you is, is it appropriate that it's a you know one size fits all car parking yeah. thing um I, i've seen other green spaces in and around the city that are now doing a um pay what you can afford um approach to car parking which is you know which is one way of doing it um another that i was having a discussion with the other week is perhaps if people and there's a little project that i'm quite pleased the charity has just started um working with a local gp surgery to provide better signposting um so if if you are if you see your gp for a medical issue and that medical issue or the treatment of that medical issue could perhaps benefit from you being outside um the plan is that there'll be a little kind of attachment on the email if you live in a particular postcode in sheffield that that will give you signpost indicators of, of of how to do that you know perhaps somebody was having a conversation with me today about if you're if you are being socially prescribed access to the countryside then perhaps with that could come a parking ticket or rather your, your parking paid for if that makes sense or or your train fare paid for or some or that kind of thing because again you see in the city um the the getting there in its in and of its own right is a is a is a significant issue for um for a large part of the demographic there does seem to be a lot of links between health and the environment uh, people are healthier when they're in a healthy environment and um the health budget is enormous and growing but the sums of money you're talking about to manage a national park another million pounds a year would make an extraordinary difference wouldn't it we're not talking about the billions that people talk about building new railways and building massive projects across the country are they? it's relatively small sums of money in a governmental budget what are we doing to get that money are, are we is there a campaign are we badgering mps you know what how do we get that increase Stay off the um the review of designated landscapes protected landscapes that took place in or uh, the the response to it was submitted in in 2019 and that was kind of once in a generational um julian glover um chaired the body that wrote the response um the president of our own charity dame fiona reynolds was part of that um and and that was a paper submitted um into the highest level about the the actual real world value of um you know open spaces and countryside to to humans and 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 um the inestimable value you could you could put on it and and a and a list of um a list of suggestions a list a list of actions that um would would facilitate that and unfortunately and, and a phenomenal amount of work went into that paper an absolutely enormous amount of work went into that paper and unfortunately it, you know it, it landed in defer in government at about the time that the you know the turmoil of government that's been going on for several years um you know kicked off and cpre cmp national parks uk and everybody else are are constantly in conversation with government about um not just providing better funding to the national parks but also how you 
by by funding um, designated landscapes, you're, you're actually saving money in other departments. You know, and you just touched yeah. on health. Um, you, you know, trans, transport's a bit of that as well. On education, um, perhaps on on um, you know um, an awful lot of uh, social issues around there. But there doesn't um, there doesn't seem to be that that realization and um you know i got animated the other day about um what some people were called greenwashing the um you know until you read kind of shell came into sponsorship with cycling uk uh, and the other day bmw um came into the fray and uh, sponsoring national parks uh, and my you know i'm kind of sat on the fence here and my, my kind of first thing was i i blew a gasket pardon the pun and i thought you know my god the last thing national parks need is um you know is, is a, a fuel guzzling supercar company to um to get involved with it but you know with a with a with a pause and a think about that what what it's actually doing is it's funding electric vehicle points kind of in and around national parks um and then there is there's an amount of money i think it works out somewhere in the region of a hundred thousand pounds per national park in england um for um for you know a, a set project and, and i think that that's probably as anybody would do you've got to look at diversifying your income and and if the national parks are in a position where the government partly through you know the inertia of all the problems that are going on um over the last kind of three or four years um can't or won't see the benefit of putting money into um designated landscapes then then it's got to come from elsewhere and and this i i think you know we're, we're on a cusp of seeing um sponsors for want of a better word well you know you you you, <laughs> you you might end up with um you know particular areas or particular activities or particular accesses sponsored by um companies i, I would hope um we don't end, enter a kind of a wider era of greenwashing where um you know companies well we've seen it with with um uk cycling in a way but you know perhaps there's a perhaps there's a space in there it it remains to be seen and actually a, for, a formal not a response but um actions off the response of the you know of the glover report um still still need to be happen and still need to happen and you know it's slightly heartened in a very small way and i might you know chew these words over but both um rishi sunak and therese coffee have both said that they you know they're going to go back to the 2019 manifesto for the conservative party and you know in and around that um you know in the paper was submitted when um michael gove was was uh, secretary of state for defra um and, and and who knows you know that the um that might be taken back up as an impetus i mean within a couple of hours of her, her being appointed Therese Coffey had um her her Twitter feed the photograph on her Twitter feed on her um whatever that's called banner was was the front cover of um the the 25 year environmental plan um it, it's it's easy to um think that might just be a you know a, a, a clever little bit of marketing that an intern did going through some photographs so it might actually be a you know a suggestion that 
this is turning a corner and 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 you know being um being taken seriously i, I don't um you know i came away from the only society meeting of the week realizing how how very different i, I thought my own take on that was both from the educational level you know the 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 adoption of of the outdoor environment and the the promotion of physical and mental well-being through the outdoors into the welsh education system at a very young age and then all the way through and chatting to some of the stakeholders and agencies that we did there just seemed to be a far greater it, it's not free it's not a free resource but but it's but it's it's out there and it's available if you sort out the access and you make it available to all kind of strata of society um we'd i i i drove home thinking if only um you know that the beginnings of that mindset could be replicated in england um just to come back to the you know the question you asked me please rest assured that there are um both the you know the great big national and international charities that you see that are involved in this fight but there are also an enormous network of smaller charities like ours um working to you know to attract funding for for those big issues whether it's whether it's a small community garden all the way through a you know treble si aomb into a into a national park um I, I can only hope that that tide turns um and with that there needs to be started by government but there needs to be a re reappreciation to everybody in the country of the value of those landscapes and that's only how you i mentioned what you know mr and mrs miggins and the kids that drive over from wherever they drive over for the day then then realize that the the portion of their taxes that the government is giving to the upkeep of those landscapes just isn't enough and perhaps creates a mindset where they you know they digitally give or or something like that yeah it's interesting there's a lot of stuff in there isn't there i hadn't heard that about bmw that's 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 very worrying but we're not going to get on top of the politics here listeners might listeners should be encouraged to interact with their members of parliament it's something i often say it feels a bit hopeless at times but i do encourage people to to engage with with letter writing rather than simply signing online permission petitions and also they should join friends of the peak district because it's not expensive to join these um these groups is it so there are practical things that we can do i should just say it was british cycling isn't it with um shell because cycling uk uh, my, is yeah, it, is my, apologies. my apologies yeah but um, you've also been involved with the nature connection stuff, haven't you? Because certainly it's coming in as hill and moorland leaders, mountain leaders, rock climbing instructors. We need to engage with that environment, engage with the nature, engage the people we're bringing in beyond just having a fantastic physical and emotional adventure. How how do we do that better? How do we get to grips with under the skin of the nature that makes up the National Park? I was chatting to uh, a friend of mine an ecologist in the rspb a year and a half a couple of years ago now and was told about some work that the rsp and a couple of other um, environmental groups were doing or on more or less on what you just said mike which was um 
when, when I get up in the morning, or let's go back to Mr. and Mrs. Miggins and the little Migginses, and they, they get up in the morning, they decide they're going to go to X, and X is a, you know, it's a country park with a pond and some ducks and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, what, why are they going there? And the, the psychological research into understanding at the, at the finest level why they go there yeah. can help you either re, I'm sorry, it can either help you um, create more of the thing in that location that they're going for or replicate that um, that thing, that environment, that atmosphere elsewhere. Um, which you know the ecologists and the anthropologists um, have been actually all over for for quite some time, but I, w- I was interested to see in a couple of reserves where they were physically growing things or building things or attracting particular um, uh, insects or birds or that kind of thing to then monitor what the humans did about that and comes under my um, fairly primitive understanding of all of this comes under um, as you said the banner of kind of nature connectedness and then I was it was um, recommended to me to have a look at the course that um, Derbyshire University do which I had a look at and went and did and it's a um, perhaps if we haven't finished the conversation yet but if there's one thing that I would recommend um you know outdoor educators mountain leaders hill and moorland leaders however and whatever they are school teachers anybody that either has an interest in the interface between humans and countryside or, or literally works in that space um yeah go, go to derby university's site it's um it's an online course it's free uh, and re- very simply it tells you as an individual um why you find nature attractive um at, at the deep rooted level and you'll have seen stories or articles coming out of covid of people whose whose nature connection was with a, a pot plant on the windowsill mm-hmm. and it, it's actually the very similar thing to you know the, the the growth and the engagement and the well-being they got from interacting with that plant as to what i may get on a walk in the hill or indeed Ethel Haythornthwaite back in um, the early 1920s got you know it's the same same kind of emotional response the other thing that it then does is um, of importance for uh, leaders and educators is it it tells you how you can quite easily adapt your time in the outdoors um, be that personal or, or a kind of professional level to to have the greatest impact to promote the greatest possible um connection with nature and it's absolutely not about the time that you spend out there it's a few small things that you can do um and the other thing i quite like is just the 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 kind of graphics um with miles and his team have created a kind of nature connectors handbook really 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 simple to understand um and and that I, I do a bit of teaching in the outdoors and I work for a couple of companies um, in and around kind of the Peak District. And, w- you know, we've had with a couple of them, we've had this narrative about the responsibility 
So like the Eminem song, isn't it, about kind of having one shot, one opportunity, particularly with young people, but not necessarily so, is if you understand how an individual connects with nature, then um, and you're taking them, you know, you've only got them for a two hour walk or that quite niche activity we have over here of weaseling. Lots of school groups do weaseling, which is kind of wiggling in and out of the rocks over at Higator and that kind of thing. But you can subliminally stop and do something or subliminally stop and look at something that literally can have a, a, a much deeper, profound impact on an individual uh, and just sow that seed. And, um, you know, David Attenborough has the phrase, which is kind of, it might go on my headstone. It's certainly all over my kind of phone and everything else of no one will protect what they don't care about and no, will, no one will care about what they have never experienced. Yeah. And if you take if you take David Attenborough's words and overlayer them with an understanding at the you know, fairly primitive level of nature connectedness, we have an opportunity there to um, just plant seeds. And if we can plant yeah. seeds, then we can, pardon the expression, but we can grow our own and the next generation a, a far greater connection with nature and try and there's lots of doom news at the moment, you know, around the one and a half percent temperature rise or our our inability to do anything about it um and everything else but what you know what what one thing um apart from example setting could and behavior um setting could a you know could a, an outdoor leader educator and actually any you know almost any any parent any anybody really um at your own level understand nature connectedness because then you can um get more out of it for yourself but also if you're working with younger people and just one last little bit on that on that mike which was really quite um was it really really insightful for me and it's kind of changed my behaviors and i, I read a bit more deeply around around the course and nature connections and the kind of thing but there's absolutely a, a psychological response where you know if you the same same walk that you do or the same run that you do or that kind of thing um we're talking about visitation behaviors but if that if you're doing that walk or run or whatever and, and seeing an increase in in litter or seeing an increasing irresponsible car parking or seeing an in, increasing dog litter a dog mess and that kind of thing there is a there's first of all a, a kind of response that says that makes you notice it more yeah so you go for the run and uh, and by noticing it more you're you're focusing on the positives less and then the kind of next stage of that psychological response is to make you less willing to go to the place that you go to for your own benefit, which if you if you extrapolate that ends up with you, you know, staying at home rather than rather than going out there. And there's, you know, within the nature connectedness um, learnings, there's ways of kind of getting around that. You know, we, we talked a moment ago about visitation of my you know, my drive from home to the Mount Rescue Team base or you know, somewhere over in the peak that I might be working, it's really easy for me to be, you know, to be blowing a gasket and swearing in the car with the amount of all of those negatives that you see, which which um, detracts from the, the great benefit of being out there in the first place. There's a real balance, isn't it? Because we, we can't ignore the negatives. We need to try and be positive. But uh, We've got to engage with the positive, otherwise we end up being negative and um, it's quite easy to get down about environmental issues at the moment. So uh, 
we do need to get out there and celebrate. Can I just, um, we, we are really at the end there, Tomo, and you've actually just answered the question that I was going to ask you finally, which was what, what can mountain leaders do, do more of, do better? Would it be that, is it the Nature Connection Handbook? What is it they look for? If they go to the Derby University website, what are they looking for? Is it the, the Nature Connection Handbook? Just give me a second. <laughs> I'm doing, for the people that are listening, I'm doing that thing where I'm literally looking for the website as... So Mike yeah, why to me. Tom um, nation. Here he goes. <laughs> Just bring yeah, it up. Yeah, so it's the Derby Derbyshire University website, which is derby.ac.uk, uh, yeah. and I think if you go to the kind of search icon uh, and just put in um, nature connectedness. Alternatively, the quicker way, if you have a um, a Twitter account. Lots uh, of good to find, um, Twitter. If you go to the the at tag, and then if you go to finding nature, uh, finding and that is nature. Miles Richardson, who is the professor of human factors and nature connectedness at Derbyshire University, and you will a you'll learn a lot by following him on Instagram, but uh, social media, but also you'll um uh, get a link to almost directly to the paper that the the hand, nature connects handbook that I just mentioned, but also the the um the deeper stuff that's in there as well um there are at, at kind of our level as well, i'm not an ecologist and i'm not an anthropologist and everything else but, but that's in a two or three years of reading quite a lot around this subject mm. that that course and the the um simplifying of an actually quite complex um, subject yeah. through the through that stuff is is you know one of the best resources that I've found. So it's, it's accessible stuff that anybody can do. Nature Connection Handbook, Derby University, and Twitter is actually quite a powerful tool. There are Twitters in the news at the moment, but you can choose who to follow on Twitter. And if one of the people choose to follow is at Finding Nature, then that's going to be useful, isn't it? So we've got people have got some homework to do there, Tomo. Um, I'm going to bring it to the close there is there anything you want to add before we say goodbye and thank you I take you know I drove home from um, I was lucky enough in my day job to to do some work in Wasdell um, do some visits and also some work in Wasdell about two weeks ago on the west coast of Cumbria and then you and I met again at um, the Snowdonia Society conference and at both of them, I put my hand in my pocket. I joined Friends of the Lake District. Um, I also made contributions to, you know, the mountain rescue team and some other bits and pieces in the Lake District. And then, you know, I joined the Snowdonia Society. Um, I, I am accepting that people listening to this might not have um, money to put in every pot that they see, but we've we've touched on, um, you know, a, a reluctance at government level in England to get their head round this this great big problem of um, the value of outdoor spaces and the you know, countryside hills and mountains that we all love. But there are not not just the one I run in in every you know from from the um, little 
community garden on the edge of a village or town right through treble SIs, AOMBs, national parks. There are small organisations, charities, people, um, you know, doing doing this fight, taking this fight up on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, if you can't make a donation to them, perhaps, you know, donate half a day of litter picking or half a day of just just doing something where as a community of outdoor leaders and educators and that kind of thing we're, we're actually really quite privileged to be able to um not only have this kind of messaging role behavior setting role but also to work in these environments and i just think it's really really important that we you just put a little bit i'm beginning to sound like Yvonne Chouinard there aren't i but it, it's just important i think that we put a little bit um you know a little bit back in uh, and perhaps even if you're not you know completely read in on the nature connectedness thing if you do get those opportunities you know if you're in kind of school half term at the moment you may find yourself teaching um families or groups or school groups that aren't necessarily around from you know from an upland environment but perhaps just have a a couple of key websites or something on a on a card or on a um qr code or something that they can take away that shows them how they can make really small actions that actually have quite large differences um it's yeah it's about giving people knowledge through through the outdoor experiences that we give them that enthuse them to you know to give a damn about this these um the countryside and the upland environment um yeah it, it it um I think it's a privilege that we're in that kind of um, position and heaven only knows that it's really, really quite um, critical at the moment that we, you know, we we continue the fight and actually we build the fight to to look after it. Brilliant. I don't think we need to say any more, Tom. I think that's absolutely fantastic. So from we, we got away without the page going off as well, didn't we? So we did. Yeah, that's that's really good news. So nobody's hurt themselves or got lost this afternoon as well, which is a bonus. Uh, loads of things we didn't talk about, but I think we covered some very important issues there. And uh, I do encourage listeners to follow some of the links that we've we've set for them. So, Tomo, thank you very much. And uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Take care.